On Kia ora koutou whanau, welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation, brought to you by Stratus, the most affordable alternative to smoking. Stratus is a hassle-free, reliable, compact pod kit. In that pod, there is some nicotine which helps you stave off the cravings of cigarettes whilst giving you a healthier uh, option than cigarettes. And basically, for the packet, for the cost of one packet of cigarettes, you get four pods and gosh, they could last you several weeks, so it's much, much cheaper as well. Find out more about it if you're trying to give up smoking or you know someone who is at vaporium.nz. Coming up today, uh, Jordan Hamill is a Poniki-based poet and performer. He was the 2018 New Zealand Poetry Slam champion and has performed at slams and festivals across New Zealand and the States as well. Uh, In September 2019, he flew to San Diego to perform in the 2019 Individual World Poetry Slam Championships. Um, During lockdown, really interesting dude. He is a poet, obviously, and a writer. He writes for places like Spin Off and Newsroom. Um, He was thinking, what should we do? All these people are locked down. So we started up uh, an online journal called Stasis, and um, we're going to talk a bit about that during this conversation as well. Really interesting chat uh, for those of you listening to this on the audio, uh, which is everyone because I'm doing the audio introduction. We had this chat at 7.30 at night, so it's got a bit of a different vibe to it. It's a bit more relaxed. We had a couple of drinks, uh, a little bit more sort of all over the place, but uh, a, a great, fun conversation with Jordan Hamill. Uh, and, and let's just play it for you now. Here he comes. Here he comes. He's nearly here. Here he comes. And we are live with Jordan Hamill. G'day, Jordan. G'day, Pat. How you doing? Good, mate. Always got to do this when I have someone. I've got to look over this way and check my levels and make sure everyone's working and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> the one-man band thing. Now, Jordan, a, a poet, a performer, a writer as well, and um, pretty interesting guy who puts out threats of stealing Prime Minister's babies and stuff on a fairly regular basis, <laughs> it would seem. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Um, just sort of you pried me away from the leaders' debate uh, for this, but I think this could be uh, possibly an even more important and better debate going I'd, forward. Cheers, so, by yeah. the way. Yeah, cheers. I, I did think we could do this, and we could just have the leaders' debate on <laughs> instead of me, and we could then just chat uh, you know, with that in the background or something. It's actually, I've got to say, yeah. it's actually a pretty good-looking set today. Look at that set in the background they've got. It is. I was really impressed. Um, I like the way John Campbell was just sort of like stalking them, oh, like some sort of like jungle cat. Um, it's, it's great. Oh, yeah, there we go. I wonder if that's done on purpose. It's like quite soft behind Jacinda and quite hard, the background behind Judith. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I wonder, I wonder if there's some like, intention there. Hmm. Some like hard geography shapes there, whereas Jacinda almost looks like angelic. Ethereal. Uh, Ethereal be. Jacinda and hard Ethereal. geography Judith. So yeah. that's the, there you go, we just coined the phrase. Hey, now. Um, definitely deliberate. I do want to. I am going to show something actually, real super super quick, um, because yep. one of the things I love that I've seen you do, and we, we won't play it all, is a. Uh, uh, and this is what I made reference to at the beginning. Uh, yeah. It's the little. Is a little poem that you made um, about yeah. stealing Jacinda Ardern's baby, seeing with you. Ladies and gentlemen, it's very funny. I stand before you today, accused of the most heinous of crimes, a crime so wretched it goes against the founding documents of Aotearoa, the Treaty of Waitangi. The Bill of Rights, the Edmunds Cookbook. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I stand accused of stealing the Prime Minister's baby. Now, there are a lot of salacious lies out there about my motivations that I'd like to clear up. Some people say I'm working with Duncan Garner, and that my theft is proof you can't be a fit parent and run the country. But the only proof of that I've ever seen is Max Key DJing. <laughs> 
Like I think, I think just for the sake of, uh, you know, having three minutes of you there, people can go to your website and check it out for themselves. But it's very, very funny. It's very. Uh, I, I wondered when I watched it, is there a? Do you have like a political? Uh, a political arm to your performances does it come from there first like are you saying I mean you made the joke about Max Key so are you kind of saying fuck day, um, Ghana fuck National I love Jacinda I love uh, Labour or I like the left or whatever or is it really just based on the idea that um, here's a subject matter you know the world is going crazy over this baby I just want to invest in that first no matter what my politics it's probably somewhere in between and that it's not necessarily like you know i love jacinda i'm a labor shill anything like that but for that poem it was more okay everyone's going crazy over this baby uh this is a really interesting thing uh and i've been thinking a lot about climate change it's like okay that's that that's like something that i am political about and something i do obviously give a few shits about and i was like okay well how can i tell stories or like create sort of i guess like pieces of art that are sort of more maybe humorous and absurd to kind of kind of portray those kind of messages i guess if that makes sense yeah, um, yeah totally. so there's like political elements in it but yeah i'm not like coming out here you know on the sort of labor platform or anything like that right yeah and, and i guess i mean obviously people can go to your website um which is of course jordanhamill.co.nz hamill with one l and they can have a look yeah. at it themselves i think it's on the front page yeah because you, you tie in not to give away the 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 tagline spoiler alert as they say but you tie in <laughs> this baby and when they're going to be 22 years old and what the planet's going to look like so more it's a a, a vehicle yeah. for the narrative of that rather than being that's but i wondered if it was you know like if yeah. if, if uh, bill english had just had a baby would the same thing have come or is there a part of this is because that's where you sit politically as well but you sound like you're saying it's uh maybe a bit of both yeah i, I think if bill english had another baby and not just because he already has like 50 but like, <laughs> i don't think the country would have cared as much so a lot of it was like more so that you know the 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 mass attention and some may say hysteria attached to the baby um you know you, you play off that obviously so it, yeah. it was it is fascinating to, to to think about a leader of a, a country first world country i guess um actually mm. then having a baby and continuing on i mean not to not to say not to say this is a form of support for the the policies of Jacinda and Labour necessarily, but what she's done in her first term of, you know, there was White Island, there was a terrorist attack, there was COVID, all while having a newborn baby. It's pretty, a, yeah. as a human being, it's a pretty fucking phenomenal effort by someone. Oh, God, yeah. It would age you, like, years and years. <laughs> and, like, she's had a whole, like, bunch of, like, garbage to deal with. Like, And, you know, you see that often with, like, presidents or leaders in crisis like you see it with bush and all those kind of people was like it, it's it'll either make or break you you know it'll make you as popular as you can be um or they'll be like well you're trash in a crisis and you're gone like so all of that while having to you know raise a little like shithead toddler and and look after clark uh is a lot you know i i, I couldn't do it so you're a really interesting character, um, as we just saw. Love your poetry. Now explain to me yeah. what a poetry slam is. We had Nathan Joe on yesterday, and he's involved with poetry <laughs> slams as well. Um, I always think about the word poetry, and me and me and Nathan talked a little bit about you know the kind of the kind of uh, cool part that you see yeah. on TV about mm -hmm. poetries and mm -hmm. berets and that kind of stuff, which obviously is, is is fictional. But when I hear the idea of a poetry slam, I kind of think about like a rap battle. 
you know, like as in there's people going off against each other because it's competition. Is it all pre-prepared and you come with it or is some of it impromptu? How does it actually work? Because Nathan said to us yesterday it's a competition, but we never actually expanded yeah. on it. So you're like, with greatest respect to you, Nathan 2.0, and you can expand on that and explain to us what a, what a, um, what a, what a poetry slam actually is. What happens? Absolutely. And for the record, Nathan's Jordan 2.0. Just I'd like that noted going forward. Fair enough. Uh, Jordan 0.5 or something like that. (laughs) Um, So I guess a poetry slam, it is, you've kind of got the the loose outline of it. It is sports for poets or as close as poets get to sports, which is not very close, um, (laughs) you know, poets. But essentially what it is, it's a loose competition, uh, normally about three rounds, about 12 poets. It's all pre-prepared. You have three minutes um, you get up three minutes you to say whatever you want um do a poem do whatever you want essentially and then you get judged and you get judged by five random members of the audience and this is an important part because at the end of the day it is it, it's sports and it's fun and you know it, it's competitive so it can be but it's also a bit of a farce because the, the judges are just five randomly selected audience members so you know art is subjective poetry subjective uh it's all a joke so it's, it depends on what those five like in the day and so they score you out of 10 um you know and then you might go through to the next round and it's it's all pre-prepared occasionally people will get up and sort of try and freestyle it a bit but you know for the most part people will come along with some stuff that they want to do um and yeah they do have like world championships though as well don't they can't you go to the worlds and that's because i was thinking the one thing yeah. about having sort of randoms and the audience judging i would imagine correct me if i'm wrong that after you go yeah. to some more serious competitions let's say let's say there's a nationwide one for new zealand or let's say there's a worlds in pick a place new york that yeah. all of a sudden feels like it becomes a bit more serious than five randoms in the in the audience making this decision sort of thing definitely definitely and it, it's quite like the stakes can be raised quite high for you know five strangers and um, i guess like to an extent um you know if people are going to these events and putting their hands up to judge they may have some sort of preconceived idea of what they want out of it or they may be really into the into the concept of slam poetry they may have seen you before a million things and like at the end of the day you just kind of have to back your own stuff and be like well you know five random people five random people will love this because i think it's good um but yeah, the stakes definitely get higher, especially on sort of like at, at the New Zealand level, like the one of the main, I guess, philosophies of New Zealand slam, which I think is really important and is really pushed is like, it's not about the points, it's about the poetry. Right. Um, and it's cool to like win the New Zealand championships or like do really well or whatever. But like at the end of the day, you know, anyone could win on the day um, and anyone could lose. Uh, well, maybe not anyone could win. Um, there's a good saying that um, Sarah Hirsch, a good friend of mine, who's a great poet, is that Good poets can lose slams, but bad poets can't win slams. If that makes sense, okay, so you can be yeah. you can come out there, you can be amazing, balls to the wall, awesome. But someone might not like you, or someone might like someone else better. And essentially, that's life. You know, like that is what it is. Um, but it definitely, you see a lot more people who take it more seriously. That the higher you go with it, especially at um, national and international levels, you see some people who you know you don't normally think of poets as competitive and sort of people, but um, some can be. We'll just say that. Um, yeah, it, it makes me think as well about art. I mean, you said, because of course poetry is subjective. Uh, when, when you, first of all, you say a good poet can lose, but a bad poet can't win, just straight away I thought of when I, I thought of when I was doing lots of auditions for various TV shows or adverts or whatever. And as long as I came out of the advert thinking I did as well as I could, 
You know, then it didn't yeah. matter whether I did get it or didn't get it. A bit like you were yep. saying with the uh, performing well. But I also just thought there for the first, well, maybe not for the first time, but, you know, is there such a thing as objective art or is all art subjective? I mean, do we agree as a society or as a group of societies that the Mona Lisa is a stunning piece of art? Is there such a thing as objective art? Uh, no, the big questions. Um, I've never seen the Mona Lisa. I heard it's actually real small in yeah. real life and actually quite underwhelming. Um, I, I think it's a boring answer, but I think it lies somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah. I think there, there there is an element of objectivity to a lot of art, and there's especially in specific disciplines, there are people that you know things that people will see as sort of you know key to the craft or valuable or whatever. And there is also an element of subjectivity when you may have people who are you know equally proficient in one way or another but do different shit and people like it for different reasons so i don't think it's necessarily all subjective but i don't think it's all objective either if it was all objective then it would make cnz's job a whole lot easier um it would make i don't know i mean yeah it would change everything but then like it's, it can't all be subjective either because then you could have you know shitty little bands playing glastonbury and no one would bat an eyelid sort of thing um, yeah, that's, so a, think, that's an interesting yeah. point. So in other words, one of the one of the reasons you measure an objectivity or subjectivity of, of various forms of art is commercial success. Oh, massively, massively. Um, and, you know, some people obviously rally against that as a measure of success, but, you know, <laughs> and, and arts are often cash-strapped, so commercial success is kind of all there is. Uh, it's like, why, why did you why did you sell out, man? It's like, well, because I, I wanted to put food on the table at some point, and I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm still doing what I want to do. But, you know, yeah. I needed a paycheck at the same time. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, a funny story about Mona Lisa. I just read this the other day, actually. Apparently, I, I, I didn't bring it up because I just read this, but I just realized as I brought it up, I read this. Um, the Mona Lisa, <laughs> one of the stories behind the Mona Lisa was it wasn't revered as being that particularly good piece of artwork. Um, and it yeah. got stolen. And then it found, it took like 40 years to find it again. And during right. that period it was missing, this, you know, the story and momentum had built up behind it from the world's most amazing piece of artwork that had been stolen. And so then when it was found again, it had a different reverence to it based on the stories and stuff that were being told while it was missing. And then it became, you know, this thing with its own room yeah. at the Louvre. So, yeah, I thought that that's was... That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting thing. And I, I think guess, it's like, it goes into like, yeah, how much narrative is important in that kind of like, and the, like the perception of art or and a lot of shit, to be honest. But like, you know, if you've got a good story and a good narrative behind it like that, like, you know, that really fucking sells it in a way that um, it wouldn't otherwise. It's just like a painting of a chick whose eyes follow you everywhere. But, you know, as soon as it's stolen and stuff, then you're like, well... But the story about it, I mean, I think about Banksy's uh, piece of art the, either last year or the, or the year before, everything's blurred into one with this fucking COVID thing. Um, but, you know, it got, got sold and then got cut in half. And, and actually, it, yeah, yeah. when it got cut in half, it doubled in value because it had the story that went with it. That's all that, well, yeah. it, that's not all that changed. It was also cut into ribbons. But because of the story, <laughs> it doubled in value. Did, so did the buyer just buy like a, like a bin full of shredded paper? They have to put it back together? I don't quite understand, like, what was the because oh. i know that story it's a great story but i wondered what the natural conclusion of it was you know so as like, I, is someone piecing it back together with sellotape and shit <laughs> well if they are piecing it back together i i'm pretty yeah. sure that they probably won't use sellotape um here we go <laughs> put, put banksy into uh le yeah. google and the very first one that comes yeah. up is uh this let's have a have a squiz there you go as soon as it was sold it goes down you see that going down 
But, oh, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. but apparently what happened was it was apparently, I mean, you never know the story because this is part of the narrative. It was said to have supposed to go all the way through, but you can see those, those people who are watching with us. It actually didn't go all the way through. It shredded and then it ah. stopped partway through. Now, the, the story goes, and I think we have to be careful with the story. There we go. Hammer drops and then it starts it to yep. shred and then it stops. Oh, look, this might actually be the story of what the... Oh, no, this is Banksy. This is him showing how he built the... I didn't even look what, know what I was looking at. Oh, about. right. This is actually the little piece. You, people can look this up on, on... If you look up Banksy artwork shredded after selling at auction, uh, you can actually look yep. up and Banksy shows how he put the shredder into the frame of the painting. There you go. There's pictures of him doing it. Um, but my, my understanding, and I do have to say it's part of the narrative, and the narrative could be false, is that it was meant to go all the way through and yeah. it didn't. So some, something mechanically happened. And I would think, of course, because this painting, it'll be called the Shredded Banksy or something now, like the, the Weeping whatever, yeah, yeah. Because, of of, because that was a massive event around the world. But yeah, of course they won't put it back together. They'll probably display it shredded. I'm, I'm sure they're putting it back in a frame, not leave it just hanging oh, God, and dangling yeah. like that. But yeah, but the but as, as we were saying, the narrative, the story of that piece yeah. of art is the reason it doubled or whatever it was, but certainly went up in value as soon as it got shredded. Mm, massively, yeah. Because really, who wants a ripped up painting? I mean, you say, would you like a, a proper painting or a ripped painting? You say, well, a proper painting, but with a narrative yeah. or the story behind it. Huh. Yeah, when it's a ripped up Banksy, you know. I was then... also thinking about the idea of, as we were talking about, object, objectivity and subjectivity is yeah. probably to answer my own question is you can never have objectivity because there's always going to be that wanger who goes, oh, that movie's terrible. You know, there are oh, yeah. people yeah. There are people who choose to be uh, oppositional for the sake of being oppositional, so therefore you're ne you're never yeah. going to get yeah contrarian. So then you're never going to get objectivity. I mean, there are some people out there who think The Princess Bride is a bad movie. Now they're called psychopaths, but um, they are out <laughs> there and they do exist. <laughs> oh man, that is good. I remember watching that, and I think we watched it in religious education because like our teacher was maybe too hungover and just kept putting on movies, and we watched The Princess Bride, and it was fucking great. But I always thought it was an, sort of out of place. Sort of weird place to watch it, but it's a good movie. How would Andre you relate, the Giant. How would you relate that back to religious education? That's interesting. I don't know. There's always a way with religion, you know. There's always, yeah. There's always a kind of abstraction to make. There's always something. The Lord, but, the yeah. Lord moves in strange ways. Some may say he's inconceivable. Something like that could have been worked in there, maybe as a little example. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you grow up in a religious household, a religious family, or you just go to religious school? Uh, like semi-religious family, like my, not nuts or anything like that. And like my, my parents are both, I'd say like non-practicing Catholics now, but like, yeah, like I was baptized and like confirmed and like went through the whole Catholic thing and Catholic schooling. Part, I think part of that was because like just most of the t schools in Timur were shit. And so my parents are like, oh, this is the best of a bad bunch. You're Catholic now. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, we'd go to church and stuff, um, like quite a bit. And yeah, so it was always like a part of my childhood and growing up and, you know, until recently, but yeah. Yeah, me too. I certainly did the um. Yeah. <laughs> oh, be a burp there. I certainly did the uh, the Catholic thing as I was growing up. But Irish mm. Irish family, it's kind of part of the part of the DNA, yep. if Absolutely. you will. Is it something that you you carried on with? Like I remember, like the last day I went to Catholic church was the last day I went to school because my parents were basically, you know, whilst you were going to school, you were going to church. I'm like, fair enough. So, finished school yep. at seventeen. Finished. Catholic Church at 17. What about you? Was yeah. it something you kind of stuck with or found some solace in or did you kind of move away from it as soon as you can? Pretty much moved away from it as soon as I can. There might have been like a small overlap in like first year 
maybe I was like hungover, you know, in the halls feeling guilty. I <laughs> mean, um, like I should go to church. Um, and there's like a few kids in that year who are like sort of also coming out of religious families. But like it was, it, it dissipated pretty quickly, to be honest. Like I maybe went to church once or twice after that. And then I was like, nah, this isn't, this isn't my jam. This isn't my shit. Um, I need to get the fuck out. Um, but like, you know, you, like like all Catholics and like all Irish people, you carry it with you in other ways, <laughs> whether you like it or not, you know, it kind of sticks with like, there's something in it where it's just like, and maybe it's bad shit, like it's the guilt or it's the, the whatever, or the trauma, but you're like, eh, you know, this will be a part of me. <laughs> but dude, yeah. the Catholic church in particular is like the fucking mafia. I I, yeah, I, I, I worked um I worked as a talkback host on ZB for a while, the first 10 years of this century. So, yeah. you know, I'd have people phone me up and go, yeah, but you're a Catholic. I'm like, dude, I've, I've been alive longer outside the church. What do I have to do? What do I have to actually do to say, yeah, I grew up in it, but I'm I'm not, I don't identify in that way. I'm not, mm. and, and no model. You know, I went to Catholic primary school, Catholic secondary school, loved school, no problems yeah. with it, great time. Yeah. And, you know, obviously Catholic family, my dad, a lot of people, especially around Auckland, know my dad's name in the Catholic world because he did some things with lots of Catholic um, businesses and the old boys network nice. and stuff. But, yeah, you can't, you, he gets blood in, blood out. You know, I think it's, it you is. just, you it just is. can't get away from it. <laughs> it is kind of nice to be part of a mafia, even if it is the Catholic mafia, you know. <laughs> like, it is nice to be like, oh, yeah, you're a Hamill. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I know your grandfather. And he did a job for me. And, uh, I, I, you know, I paid him good because he's Catholic and all these kind of secret handshake things and that's kind of nice <laughs> in a weird way i don't know it's interesting as well growing up kind of because when i came out of the catholic church I, what i realized was i knew a lot of the stories really well you know the the, yeah. the parable type stories yeah, of the yeah. loaves and fishes but i didn't know anything about the religion that yes. this that this figurehead jesus was in charge of and i spent a lot of time in my 20s more finding out about the character of this dude jesus he was fucking awesome like as an actual yeah. you know like the what what he said you know and 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 how he acted and the teachings that came from him no one can really challenge whether well, you can't always challenge him you can be that contrarian again but actually you know look after the widows and orphans treat each other well yeah. you know be humble be caring these messages are amazing mm. and um yeah I, I I don't know. I don't wish I had more of that when I was a child, but it would have put a different slant on what Catholicism was to me. Should I have had, you know, a different sort of perspective on what the overarching part of this religion was, rather than yeah, I know that story because that's what I came away with. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it would have changed you at all, like mm. the man you are today? I think uh, that's like the wafting of the butterfly wings, isn't it? It's like, you know, if, <laughs> if, if a butterfly wings waft differently, then the whole world has changed in the future. So I think that yeah. it's un inarguable to go, if you had a different kind of upbringing, you'd be a different kind of person. I guess the question is, what kind of person would you be? Better, worse, or no different? Because you could be a completely different person, but you know, the same whatever you are now, morally, spiritually, you know, physically, yeah. family-wise, but you could be different. Or you could be a completely different human being. I, I don't know the answer to that other than saying logic would dictate you. Of course, I'd be a different person. But don't know if it'd be better mm. or worse, though. No, and I guess we can't know. That's that's hypotheticals. Where it's a kind of exercise in pointlessness because we're we're here now and we're we're, we're the way we are. I, I guess. Yeah. Now you grew up in the South Island in, in uh, Timaru. Uh, you're uh, yep. obviously living up in. Was well, obviously uh, for people to know? You're living up in the Wellington-ish mm. area now. You still got uh, Fano. In the South Island, do you spend much time down here in the mainland? I do, yeah. So most of my, my parents and like my sisters are still in the South Island, uh, Timidu. 
uh, in Dunedin. Um, I studied in Dunedin for five years, um, lived there for six. I, it's, I still try to come back as much as I can. Uh, I fucking love it down there. Um, yeah, Timidu sort of when I can, um, Chris, the holidays and see the family, that kind of stuff. But yeah, there's still, there's still a big sort of, I guess, part of me and my father that's, that's sort of very linked to the South Island and always will be. As a, I'm going to say, millennial. Are you a millennial? Someone in that age bracket? Um, like someone like me, I'm Gen X, and I grew up. Yeah. In, I grew up in Auckland. Um, I'd be interested to get your take on the difference between sort of you know. There's always a a, um, a battle or a opinion between you know South Islanders and North Islanders. As someone yeah. who's who, who's a millennial and now living in the North Island, what do you see? Do you see much difference between uh, the people from both both islands? And is it are you treated any differently, or is that just people from Auckland? I think it's just Aucklanders, um, you know, which is not unfounded. So, so it's fine. Uh, you know, prejudices exist for a reason. Um, no, I, I think a lot of it is probably well, what I've seen more like going from Timaru to Dunedin in the Wellington is maybe more of like a kind of regional urban divide, like living, right. not that Wellington is a big city, but it's, you know, it's a liberal bubble. And I think Auckland is quite similar. Um, whereas, you know, you drive a couple of hours out of town, you're in sort of Danny Burke or somewhere. And that's probably where, the differences and where the sort of the kind of I guess like preconceptions of the other maybe exist a bit more than North North Island South Island now. Well, um, I wonder as well yeah. because perhaps a larger percentage of the South Island people are rural compared to yeah, the percentage definitely. of the North Island people, then that divide might seem bigger. So what what I hear you saying is like Aucklanders might relate better to Wellingtonians or people from Christchurch, although they are a special breed in, in, by themselves. They or are a pe- special breed, yeah. people from Dunedin than they would perhaps from Timaru or from Hastings or from Nelson, the smaller. But they're, they're even, they're kind of city-ish. Or Matamata, you know, they might relate better. Yeah. yeah. So it'd be interesting, would an Aucklander relate better to someone from, from Christchurch or someone from Matamata? Because that's... That's r- a good point. Yeah. Um, because Christchurch is kind of a special case where it's a city, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a garbage city, you know. Um, and... I don't know, man. Christchurch people, yeah, they they are a special breed, like that's for sure. Um, yeah. So I, I take, so, Maybe... I t- so I take it you're not performing in uh, Christchurch anytime soon with that comment. <laughs> I think I am actually. <laughs> no, I, I love Christchurch. Christchurch is great. Uh, some of my best friends um, have driven through Christchurch. Um, <laughs> but no, no, Christchurch is fine. I was just like, I don't know. It was it's growing up in Tim is like Christchurch was always the big city, you know. Like you go to you drive up on the weekends, the parents go to the malls, go to Rickerton Mall. Maybe go get yourself like a Billabong T-shirt or something, and that was that was good times. Stussy, a Stussy T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. Um, you grow up a bit more, and you're like, oh, Christchurch, Christchurch kind of sucks. You're, you know, it's, it's filled, filled with a lot of angry people, so, a lot of angry white people. So, um, were you yeah. still in Timaru when the big quake happened? Uh no, I was in Dunedin. I think it was my first, second year of uni, first year maybe. But your um, folks, I remember were, it happened. Your folks obviously were. Yeah, they were. And because for people who don't know, basically, I, I consider Dunedin to be, sorry, I consider uh, Timaru to be exactly in the middle of Christchurch and Dunedin. It's like, it's yeah. like, it's like, it, like if I'm ever meeting someone for business or something from Christchurch, and it does happen occasionally, or even a friend or a family member, I'm like, see in Timaru. And that's like, that's exactly in the middle for two places. And I've done that a handful of times. Where do you, know? you go? Where do you meet in Timaru? Where's your, where's your rendezvous point? Um... What is the name of that bay with the um, Caroline Bay? Caroline Bay with yeah, the um, it. it's a 
it's a, there's like a fairground there all year round that seems to operate about three days a year, but it's always yep, there. The Caroline Bay Carnival, yeah, operates uh, three three and a half days a year, I believe. Uh, <laughs> and they they haven't changed the ride since the seventies, and I think one of the roller coasters broke with people on it last year or a couple of years ago, and there were some injuries. Um, yeah, Osh would have a field day. It's it's a beautiful place, otherwise. Yeah, I um took my kids there. Christmas just gone. So I, it, it's a good place to meet in the middle. It's a good place if you're driving from Dunedin to Christchurch or vice versa. It's a good place to stop because the kids can get out yeah. and stretch their legs, that sort of thing. Absolutely. But I actually took the kids there for the carnival this year just gone. And actually, it was quite a lot of fun. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you had a good time. Um yeah, did, did you go on the rides? Did they have the concerts on at the Sound Show? Um, I didn't see any concerts. I was just about to open they, up. They mic. used to have um, Miss Timaru there and also Junior Miss Timaru, both of which I'm sure will hopefully have gone by the wayside. But um, that was sort of one of the, the, the high points in the Timaru calendar was the, the beauty pageants at the Sound Show um, back in the day. I'm terrified just that the idea of a <laughs> of a – miss junior anything these days and the current climate oh, yeah. we live in i mean i yeah. think as you say i think the old uh the old miss competitions have, have gone to the wayside but the idea of a miss junior just i i just, I just shudder i'm i'm terrified by that yeah. concept and then especially when you hear what's happened with those sorts of competitions over overseas and you hear about trump owning miss teen usa and walking in on the contestants stuff it's just like yeah. it's a it, it feels awesome. like it should be a thing of the 50s and it's shocking to think it was probably here 10 years ago yeah it really is it, it's, it's like how do people still think that was a good idea i mean it was never a good idea um and yeah it's just it's, it's a breeding ground for problems and for um people to take advantage of that kind of stuff. Hey, have a Not look at the, have a look at this. We'll come back to the fascinating yep. conversation about child pedophilia <laughs> shortly. But uh yeah. this is this is the summer. <laughs> this is the summer at Carolyn Bay. This was this was the It's the chair plane. Yeah, there yeah. You go. That is that is liter that is literally oh. Christmas just gone. How good. That looks like a wonderful Christmas. Great footage you've got there. Yeah. That's just that's just a yeah. taken of a, a bunch of kids going past that are, that you're supposed to block out their faces because or else you'll get accused of doing something. But yeah. So pretty sure so, I spewed on that chair plane once when it was going. It's just sort of <laughs> this is windmill of vomit when I was a child. Uh, but yeah, good times, good stuff. Yeah, so um yeah, things of yesteryear, that's a, a it feels like the the beauty pageants are a thing of yesteryear. It feels yeah. like the uh, you know, they used to do those things that were on television, probably last decade, the toddlers and tiaras thing, about little, 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 little kids in yeah. those. It's, Rings I, it's, just, it's just repugnant. I don't I don't get it. I don't understand how anyone can want to be a part of it. I don't understand. I, other than living vicariously through your children because you were never able to do these things. I just don't, I don't get it. Shit, when my kids were at primary school, I'd be like, um, the, ki- the, the school... I actually kind of instigated, well, I didn't, but I asked to have an instigated a new rule in the school, which is you don't put my child's name on the internet, please. I don't, I yeah, don't, I don't, like I don't, pretty... I don't want to. I mean, like, this is the first generation, my kids, that are going to have a, like, social media footprint or a digital footprint their whole lives. And it doesn't need to start when they're six at school. So if you want to put, I'm making up a kid's name now because I don't even say my kids' names on this sort of thing. If no, you're no, gonna, of course. If you're going to put Jenny room four, fine, no problems. If you're going to put Jenny Brittenden room four, no, I don't want that to happen. So, yeah, I no, I, I, I don't get parents, you know, that's the whole soccer mom mentality or trying to live vicariously through your children. Don't get it. I think yeah. it's dangerous. 
and you see the rise in like sort of I guess like Instagram parents and Insta moms. It's not just moms, it's Insta parents, but like you know, who and then these kids like you know giving their kids their own Instagram pages as soon as they're born, and it's like. I don't know. There's a weird element of like consent that's lacking there. It's like these kids are going to look back and be like, you know, I was kind of splayed half naked on the internet for everyone to see from a very young age. And that was just my upbringing. And I really had a choice in that. And that just seems a bit, I don't know, maybe narcissistic or just a bit kind of bizarre, really. Yeah. I, I finally realized that we are living in some fucking crazy <laughs> universe when, uh, and, I, and I'm going to be gentle here because they are semi-friends of mine used to be friends of mine acquaintances of mine <laughs> used to be well you know pe pe yeah. people that you can't hear until, until about three minutes ago um <laughs> people that i knew more closely but they're moving to need and they became distant so yeah. you know acquaintances uh having a hashtag for their baby you know yeah, obviously, obviously i won't say what it is but let's say their, their kid's name was richard james every every photo that came out it was hashtag richard james i'm just like fuck it's like what are you doing yeah, that's some like late stage capitalism, cultural hellscape bullshit. Like that is horrifying. Yeah, we're in the same. We're in the same. See, this is generations coming together and finding equal purpose at things that we hate. I love it. Um, <laughs> and that's how you, that's how you bond is over shit you hate. Like that, that, nothing is more powerful than that. And the other thing is, I've always been, and even when you know, back in the first decade of this year when I was working in talkback and that kind of stuff, I've always been yeah. sort of a proponent of, you know, the Michelle Pfeiffer Dangerous Minds quote. You're probably too young to have seen that movie, but um, it's gang <laughs> Gangster's Paradise. It's, that, it's where that song comes from. Um, yeah. There's no victims in this classroom. You know, there's no victims in these decisions. There's always decisions you can make. And I used to have conversations with people about housing. Oh, I can't afford to buy a house. I can't do this. What do you do for a job? Oh, I'm a teacher. Well, move to Timaru. You know, there is actually there is actually a no, but I'm like there is actually a decision you can make. If having a house is your number one responsibility, you have agency in that. If you choose to stay in Auckland, fine, you can't afford a house. That's a part of the course. But you can choose to move elsewhere and get a house. You have a decision. There's no victims in this classroom. And I feel about this. Literally, the com like conversation my mum gave me last weekend when she was here was <laughs> word for word that that is that is scary. <laughs> Your mum sounds like a fantastic human being. Um, she is. She's great. But so so I but I love that idea about about the no victims thing and, and I and I it frustrates me with parents you know parents who give their fucking children you know these things which are enough to 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 send people to the moon in the nineteen sixties more so when they're in mm. their first year of intermediate school or primary school it just it's just ridiculous because apart from anything else as soon as you've got this you've got porn in your life as soon as you've got this that's what's in your life you've got you've got pornographic material. Without oh, question. exactly, and, and, yeah. If you, um, and it's, it's a bigger conversation about like media, like technology literacy and media literacy, and like I used to work at the BSA, um, and like sort of, and you look at you know sort of what's on telly and what's on radio, and you know more and more, it's like it doesn't really matter anymore because as soon as they have that phone, they have access to the whole world, um, and you know there's all those studies that came out from like the census office about kids being exposed to porn and like like objectionable material from the ages of like eight is like the common practice now, and it's yeah, it's crazy. Yep, and so you know, and you hear parents playing the victim card. You know, oh, I got to do, oh, I got to do that, and I got to do, oh, I got to do that. You know, I remember, and I'm going to sound like an old bugger now, but you know, I, I got my first cell phone when I was about twenty, eight, nineteen, twenty, and that's because that's yeah. when cell phones started to become affordable for people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I remember having a conversation even back then. I was at teachers' training college, even back then with a very close yeah. friend, and she lived in Tauranga. And, um, you know, teacher training college was in Auckland. And yeah. she kind of said, oh, you know, I mostly got the cell phone 
you know, for a security measure when I drive backwards and forwards from Tauranga to Auckland. And I was like, what have you been doing for the previous two or three years? You know, you've been <laughs> driving backwards. It's even even then, I was a bit of a Nazi, obviously, a little bit. Yeah, just I like a that. just a little you bit. Carried that with you. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I get eternally frustrated with parents who kind of go, "Oh, what can I do? It's what they're doing. All kids have got them. They need a device." It's like fuck off. You know, kids can have. Do you dust. get like peer pressure from other parents to like do the same for your kids at all? No, we we nah. what what we did, and I'm separated from my kids' mum. Um, no, the whole right. long story, which actually is, is when I say well publicized, we I just all blogged about it and stuff. People can read it on my blog if they want to. Yeah. Um, in fact, I wrote a piece today about how Donald Trump's going to win this upcoming election. We can talk about that later if you want. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, please, please. <laughs> anyway, um, we have because of what we do as adults, we get these, and we, I, I was just I'd be careful putting it that way. Well, you know, Pornhub might come on the front page. Actually, um, we have these things, and then we get a new one two years later. So you've got the last series. They often get handed on to the kids. So we did one that we called the Farno Phone. So primary school, fuck off, children. You're not having any phones. Yeah. Intermediate school, we have what we call a Farno Phone. <laughs> And the Fano phone was exactly that. Sure. It wasn't, doesn't belong to you. You don't own this phone. It lives on top of the fridge or whatever. But if you're going to your mate's place for a sleepover or if you're going to a birthday party, you can take it with you, that kind of thing. And it's not until yeah. secondary school that they that two of my two of mine are at secondary school that they got their first phones. So I don't really have yeah. those conversations with parents because if they did, I'd probably talk to them like this and they'd move away from me very quickly. Um, but our, <laughs> our, our kids aren't like, like we're not we're not troglodytes when it comes to shit you should see my studio one two three four five yeah six, it looks like you're you're, seven, you're hooked got, up with the technology i've got there. seven yeah. screens seven screens in the studio right now so it's not that we're troglodytes with oh that God. but it's and my face is on all of them <laughs> but we i'm i'm a <laughs> i'm a very big believer in that technology is amoral you know it's it's not good it's not bad it's what yeah, what, oh, God, yeah. what we God, do yeah. with it and i get really tired of people being a victim to their technology so yeah, yeah no, so that's I what agree. we try and do Nice, nice. It seems like from someone who doesn't know anything about parenting, it seems like it's like sort of solid plan. Well, you're speaking yeah. to someone else who doesn't really know very much about parenting, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a there's a really good clip online. A guy called I'm going to forget his name. Um, I'll, I'll look it up. He talks to millennials about in the workplace. In oh, uh, the workplace, talk about millennials in the workplace. Um, that's who he is, Simon Sinek. And okay. he has a really interesting. I won't play it. Obviously, they'll, I'll get pulled off YouTube for doing that. But he has <laughs> he has a really interesting conversation. This is, I'm just showing the footage of it so people can go look for it themselves. They'll recognise it. He has a very interesting like eight minute chunk of this from about there to oh, yeah. about there, um, sure. where he talks about technology and he talks about what technology does to your brain, and he talks about you know um, the synapses it fires off in your head. And it yeah. fires off the same things as things like alcohol and cocaine, you know, getting those yeah. rewards and stuff. And releases endorphins, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's and, a, there's a new documentary on Netflix about it. That social dilemma that I've been getting like ads shot into my brain for that looks um looks like very relevant like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, I've it's got like, that. I've got that bookmarked to be one of the watches. But I've I've yeah. I've yeah. shown that clip to my my two older kids maybe six times, just that yeah. thing. So then when they go. Oh, like you don't have phones in your bedroom. Oh, Dad, can I have my phone? I'm like, would I give you a bottle of vodka in your bedroom? And they go, no, <laughs> because that's what he says. He says you wouldn't wouldn't leave your alcohol cupboard just open for your kids to take. So, you know, this this is the point that he's making. Yeah. So, yeah, it reminds me of those old um piracy ads. Like you wouldn't steal a car 
and it's like yeah it's it's great logic i like it in your realm of art poetry yep. performance um is that an issue do you do is it an issue because i mean like obviously people who are, are musicians and stuff even though i wonder yep. if stealing through the internet is a bit different these days because of things like spotify and you know the the places we can get music for free anyway but perhaps more yep movies and that kind of stuff are still targets for being stolen what about what with what you do is with uh, what you do is that something you have to be aware of to do with protecting your intellectual rights and stuff uh no nah, i don't think so i don't think anyone cares enough to steal poetry um i think it's maybe more about there's there's always like a managing of your i guess like image maybe or like managing of your own sort of work um and it definitely can be a case maybe more so in like the written sense like people may take a poem of yours and be like, hey, look, I wrote this or send it out somewhere else or like publish it, republish it online. You see that a lot with like visual artists in New Zealand. I know I have to deal with all of that kind of shit. Um, a couple of my friends who are like reasonably like kind of well-known, I guess, in Instagram and like that kind of stuff, like publish like books or poems and then maybe they'll get republished somewhere and they're like, actually, you know, that that is kind of stealing. Like at least give me credit, give me a hit, like something, give me a hit tip, like don't pass this off as your own. So it's, it's not a big issue, but it definitely does happen. Um, it can happen for sure. Wow. You said you were, uh, you're working with the BSA. You were a lawyer there. Is that right? Yes, I was. Is that the Broadcasting Standards Authority, for those who don't know, is really the watchdog over what radio and television, general standards, yeah. Uh, yeah. consumer complaints, that kind of stuff from coming from the radio industry and from watching the radio industry, on the outside, I don't know too much about the television. It seems to be a bit of a toothless beast. Like it's it's like Mike Hoskins is just being hauled hauled over the coals again for telling everyone that there was no problems with COVID. I'm, yeah. I'm I've got my tongue in my cheek. And mind you, I don't have to care about the fucking BSA because I'm on the internet. There's no broadcasting yeah, standards on the internet. They um, can't regulate you. No, no, they can go fuck themselves. Um, so. Exactly. Uh, I guess the idea of it is almost, I feel like the industries, radio and television in particular, they go, we want an overseer to, to keep us in check, but then the overseer yeah. that keeps them in check can't really do anything. How does that work? Just like you said, pretty much. Um, so what's the point? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's a great question. Uh, it's been it's been around for what, 30 years. Um, I probably shouldn't be too critical of it, just in case anyone's listening. But um yeah, I mean, there's definitely like an argument that it is it is a toothless beast because of the, the the limitations it has placed on it in terms of what it can actually do, and it's not much more than a you know wet bus ticket. Um, and I think Mike Hosking had a very great quote last year. Where he called us um, he said clipboard waving pontificators, which I thought was quite quite a nice choice of words from him. I thought that was maybe one of his better moments. Uh, do you? I mean, I'm just checking. Do you still work for them? Because I thought you kind of said you used to work for them. No, I don't. I don't. Okay, because you just said there, you, yeah. you better be careful with your words. I'm hoping that I wasn't just dropping you in the shit there. That's what I was just checking on. No, nah, it should be. It should be okay. It should be okay. But yeah. Um. So, from someone who's worked on the inside of a regulator, for want of a better word, trying to look after the accuracy and fairness of radio and TV, surely there is a what would it have to be a government instituted department to actually have some teeth to be able to you know, emit fines or something? What should they be? What what should what should we be doing? Um, it's a great question. I mean, I get the bigger question is probably whether, it, you know, it's sort of an uphill, too much of an uphill battle now. It's sort of, you know, the rolling the stone kind of thing, whereas so much media now is consumed outside of, you know, radio and TV. Like those, it's a very sort of, it's outdated legislation and it's sort of an outdated way of thinking. It's like most people do their stuff on the internet now. 
can that be regulated? Should it be regulated? Um, you know, more people watch YouTube, more people watch whatever Netflix, like, is there even a space for that kind of regulation of our sort of mainstream media anymore? And I, I don't know what the answer is, but it's a, it's an interesting conversation, that's for sure. It, it does always fascinate me when you look at maybe more like America. I'm a bit of a political junkie in America. And I just, uh, you know, I, oh, I, I take I take the political world and intravenously wake up in the morning yeah. is the first thing I do. Often the last thing I do before I go to bed is look at the American political system. Um, and I often wonder about their broadcasting and radio and TV and they just outright lie. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I just like how uh, I, I don't think there's many in New Zealand. Maybe maybe there are individual people presenters or hosts or journalists quote unquote journalists or, or commentary people who outright lie but it feels like most people might be wrong but they're not necessarily nefariously spreading lies but in america it feels like a lot of i mean of course i'm thinking fox news that sort of thing yeah of course, just of course outright bullshit lie and then smile while they're doing it i i don't know how that's actually allowed freedom of speech man constitution all that bullshit um it, it's so <laughs> revered it's it's so held up on this pedestal uh as, as all of their constitutional rights are but yeah um i'm also a big junkie for that um before this podcast i was listening to some other podcasts about the supreme court nomination and um, got very wound up over that um it's a, i'm spending my afternoon but it's 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 so much more interesting than new zealand politics it's such a better story uh if you will yeah well when ruth Bader ginsburg passed away in the weekend i thought shit i gotta talk about this i gotta do something so i got a hold of um professor robert patman and we yes. did on sunday morning we did a quick 30 minute chat it wasn't really a podcast per se but it's a video up on facebook um yep. about us talking about what we think is going to happen what's coming next and what it means for the upcoming election and the two things that came out of it the first thing my thought that came out of it was maybe trump will have more chance of getting elected if he doesn't nominate someone because if he doesn't nominate someone then all those moderate conservatives who don't like him yeah, have to put them back in to ensure they get yeah, a the state. yeah right wing or, yeah. or or a conservative judge. Whereas if he puts one in before and if it gets through, then all those moderates are like, well, fuck Trump. We'll just vote. We'll just either abstain or vote for Biden because from a corporate position, it's not going to change that much under Biden as it is from Trump mm. for for the wealthy. Um, but the other thing that came from it, as I started thinking about it, which is what I wrote about today, was yeah. actually it seems to me just that potentially the only way that Biden's now going to win is if he has a massive lead at the end of the voting day. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. My premise on that was there's every chance, and you can people can go to patbrittenden.com and have a, look at the, have a look at the blog, but the synopsis of it is there's every chance that Trump will be ahead at the end of the voting day. Research has shown that 80% of uh, Trump voters will be there on election day, whereas only about 60% of Biden voters will be there. That disparity might be enough to give Trump a lead. And then, of course, yeah. what, what he's done, talking about you know, the fraud that is the mail-in voting, if Biden then takes over because of mail-in voting, it's going to go to the Supreme Court. And if it goes oh, yeah. to the Supreme Court and he's got someone in, then he wins. If he doesn't have someone in, even if Justice Roberts goes with the Liberals, it's still 4-4. And what happens then is it goes to the next court down. And the next court down right. is full of Trump appointees as well. And Trump wins. And yeah. so it feels to me that perhaps the only way... I mean, you know, I was 100% wrong last time. So take this with, <laughs> with a bucket full of, of salt. Yeah. Not just a I think everyone was wrong last time. That's all right. 
But it, but it, it kind of feels that maybe the only way, let's put it this way, the only way Biden can kind of ensure a win is if he has yep. a massive lead on November 3rd. Exactly. Um, and because, yeah, like it won't be an election night for them. It'll be an election week. And like, I think the most likely scenario, like you said, is like Trump's going to have a lead in most of the battleground states in the night. And then over those next few days, you'll see them like starting to fade blue and tick blue with the mail-in. And at a certain point, the Republicans are just going to be like, nah, that's that, that's enough. Stop the count. Much like um, 2000 with Al Gore and Bush, like it was very similar. And then it goes, obviously, the you know, try and challenge it. Be like, no, you know, stop counting. This is this is it. This is it at this point. And it'll go to the court on a matter of what should be counted and what shouldn't. And it'll be some very minute point. And it'll be a shitstorm. And whereas like Al Gore kind of just like rolled over at the end of the day from memory, where he was just sort of like, you know, the upholding democracy is more important. And then it should, everyone should sort of, you know, have this faith in democracy. And I'm hoping even though I have a lot of doubts in Biden, that he'll at least sort of, you know, and the Democrats will fight tooth and nail to be like, count every last fucking vote. But I don't have a lot of faith in the Democrats to do much these days. So we'll see. Um, well, it seems, gonna be, it seems that the right, and, and, I, and, and I've been challenged on this recently, and I'm happy to admit if, if I'm wrong, but it seems yep. that the right in America, and I think you see it in New Zealand as well with ACT and the national relationship, the right seems to play politics better, like as, a, as the, oh, yeah. the game of politics, and the left, the left seems to be more fractured. And even if you look at America at the moment, I would have loved to have seen a Bernie Sanders, you know, up against Trump. Oh, that same. would have yeah, been God, yeah. fascinating. Um, mm. Because it would have been a genuine choice between two different ideologies, whereas now what you've got is a very similar ideology, politically speaking, but some differences in policy. But that would have been a difference yeah. in ideology. Um, and yeah. the, that would have been an ideological battle, exactly. The other thing um, that may may happen with this Ruth Bader Ginsburg thing is you might find this might be the thing to fire up the progressives to finally get behind Biden. Meaning, okay, we're going to have to suck this lemon. That's what they would think. But... If we don't, and the and the courts go six to three, goodbye Obamacare. Potentially goodbye Roe versus Wade. You know, hello, 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 Jesus Christ at the centre of our politics permanently. You know, all these sorts yeah. of things. I'm goodbye EPA. You know, like any sort of climate change regulation, it's all gone. Yep. Um, and just as it may well be the sort of you know battle cry for the progressive left to get behind the the sort of the the more establishment of the party. I wonder whether it'll be sort of a galvanization of Biden to sort of, if because at the moment he's he's playing it how he should and that he's trying to get, convince a couple of Republicans to sort of, you know, to not vote. But if that fails, I wonder whether he'll throw off the shackles in a way. And, be, and if, if he gets in and if they get a majority in Congress, whether he's like, well, you know, we, we were reasonable, we tried, we tried to play the game, you know, in a, in a sort of tolerant left way. Fuck it. And, you know, maybe he packs the, the court with more seats, gets rid of filibuster, sort of actually does what the right would do because the right are very good at playing politics because they have no real principled qualms with it. You know, they have they don't care, um, as we're seeing now with the denomination compared to the Merrick Garland thing, whereas the left are much more sort of known to trip over their own shoes uh, in the interests of propriety when it comes to the the actual, I guess, procedure of it all. Um and so I would like to see them be more ruthless uh, if, if it all goes to shit, which it very well might do. I, um, I just, I, if I was in America and I was a, um, 
a voting person. I, I think I would finally have given up on politics. Yeah. And really, one of the things that's come down to, bring up this Twitter feed, I've just, I, I got a, I'm not sure what this is going to play because I, I'm only just, I haven't pre, pre-looked at this. Boy, but yeah. Well, I can tell you one person who doesn't believe in polls, and that's Hillary Clinton. <laughs> She was 21 points ahead of Bernie in Michigan. This is the um, when uh, Lindsey Graham basically says, you can use my words against me when it comes to appointing a justice in the last year. When it comes to judges. So I won't go there. President Bush's nominees were filibuster rule because you may need it one day. And I'm going to vote for that person. Supreme Court just ask us not to mm. confirm or take up a selection by President uh, Obama. So if a vacancy occurs in their last year of their first term, guess what? This is Republican. You will use their words against yeah. them. I want you to use my words against me. Yeah. So there you go. If I, I mean, like, I know, I know we, all, I know we all kind of don't trust politicians, and we know they all flip. But you know, often there's a way they can sneak out of it. You oh, know, God, yeah. they, they they find a way, but Senator Graham, and we played it on Sunday morning, so if people want to see it in its entirety, just go to uh, the DOC on DOC NZ on Facebook and you'll find it in that clip. As he said, we are setting a new rule. He said the new rule is appointees won't be made in the last in the last year of a presidency. He said, especially a lame duck presidency, which basically means at the end of their eighth year. They can't go forward. But he said, but even at the end of a fourth year. And then he said, if it happened in the first term of a Republican president, it, we want, we're we setting up a new rule and you can um, use my words against me. And they've all just gone, nah, fuck it. We'll do it anyway. I mean, that I honestly feel like that I would be out. I'd be out of the political game. I'd be, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. But I mean, no one was surprised by that. Like everyone knew like that, you know, those words mean nothing. And that that rule is not a rule. Like you know, like no one's no one's holding them to that, and they're not going to be held to that. And you know, there's already ways that you see the right in America sort of structuring the the fight around it, and sort of the arguing around it, and sort of being like, well, you know, there were these midterms, these Senate elections, like there's a clear mandate, blah blah blah. Like you know, th- there's already a lot of weaseling. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's just it just makes me sad when you just see shit like that. And you're like, nothing means anything anymore. <laughs> I, I tell you, facts. I tell you what's going to happen from now on if they're smart, is mm. justices on the Supreme Court will start retiring. If Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and and she had cancer since 1999, right? So yep. she was a sick lady for a long time. Um, notorious RBG, I love that. Um, mm. If she had have retired in Obama's term, there'd be a younger progressive there now. And yep. I, I think what you might see happening is especially on the right, because they play the game better, is that in, in 15 years from now, when some of these conservative justices are getting closer to 80, they're in their 70s, they're getting closer to 80, mm. the Republicans will go, retire in the first year of President Tucker Carlson's first term, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll set you up with a big fat paycheck for the rest of your life, and then yeah. our president can nominate another conservative. I used to play this game, right? I don't know if you've ever played yeah. it, but it's a. I used to play it when I went to Pizza Hut when I was a kid, and it's a it's a it's a page, and it's just dots all through the page, just dots, nothing else, and you draw a line between two dots, and you go in turns, draw a line, draw yeah, a line, yeah, and if, and what you're trying to do is make a square. 
Yeah. And what you can do is you can do this thing if you're tricky, that if you get like what eventually happens, if people who know the game I'm talking about, is you can get a long string of things and someone has to put one, a line in finally that leaves a big tunnel. And so all you gotta yeah. do is go one line, that's a square. Boom, boom, and you make all these squares. And when you get and two point. and when you get two from the end, you leave a gap and you put a square so you've left a rectangle. So you count right. up 19 out of the 20 squares and you left a rectangle and then the person you're playing has to put one in that gap and they get two and then they're screwed for their next turn. I feel yep. like that's what they could do with Supreme Court. They could just, they could actually keep six to three for the rest of time if they just got the oldest Supreme Court justice to retire in year one of a new presidency. Oh, very easily. Very easily. And I, I don't think the Democrats will expand the bench if they get the chance. I don't think the, um, and that's what, as we're talking about, the Republicans play the game better. And all the, of the like 25 youngest justices ever admitted to the Supreme Court, I think 20 of them are Republican, where it's like they fucking know. They elect young people, like you wait to see they elect now, they elect young people who are going to live forever <laughs> because they're like, we want this as long as possible. We're not going to elect some crusty ass, like 65 year old. Like, we're going to have like a 25-year-old straight out of Harvard because then we have them in our pocket for 50 years, you know, and then we'll get them to retire. Like, they're not stupid about it at all. And I, it, and it's hard because like the Ruth Bader Ginsburg thing, like maybe she should have retired in the Obama like era, but it's not really on her. It's like, it's it's a, it's a system defect in a way. Um, and it's really, you know, you can't put that on like a, especially like a judge to be like, yeah. you know. And look, I'm not, it's not, yeah. a, it's not a criticism of her. It's just going, no, like, no, of course. If, of course. if yeah, they yeah. had have played it better, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had retired, then what she could have done, forget her name, if Justice X had have retired, then they could have actually had a hand in going, this person here I really like to take over after me. So they could have yep. actually, you know what I mean? Um, and I know yeah, that's not how they do it, but if one of them... It's a little bit of it, but... Well, you, know, but of... you can't force someone to stay a justice if they want to retire. No. no? No, exactly. It's like back to our Catholic roots. It's like the Pope is supposed to be a lifelong term, but that that Nazi Pope from a few years ago retired. Yeah, the, Na the Nazi Pope retired, and yeah. he just kind of slunk away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Faded into the bush like Homer Simpson. Yeah, I love that scene. Homer J Simpson. <laughs> hey, look, tell yeah, me, tell me, um, uh, you obviously have, um, you've got your uh, writing, and you've got your, or you've got your poetry, and you've got your performing, but you also yep. look like during the uh, uh, the lockdown, you started up a bit of a. Um, well, here it says a live digital journal where you were giving uh, people the chance to publish their poetry and you were kind of facilitating that. It's called Stasis, uh, stasisjournal.com. Tell me about it. Yeah. Yeah. So that was um, actually a brainchild of my friend Sinead Overby uh, and she got me on board to help with it and sort of co edit. And um, it was us two and our producer, Annie James. And essentially, we just felt shitty that all of our artists' friends and writer friends had kind of lost all of their opportunities for the next, like foreseeable future when lockdown happened and we're like, you know, everything kind of got canceled. Um, and so we're like, okay, well, we want to do something to help. Like, even if it's only a minor token thing. So we started a journal um, and we're like, okay, we'll, we'll pay writers because journals, literary journals aren't known for paying writers and definitely aren't known for paying writers. Well, um, it's not, it's not, you know, uh, completely uncommon, but it's pretty uncommon. So we're like, fuck it, we'll, we'll start one, we'll publish stuff from people who we like and whatever, and we'll pay the money. Um, and then CNZ luckily gave us a big, big fat stack of cash to help that. They thought it was a good idea. And they're like, cool, that's a great idea. Here's some money, go give it to some people. Um, and so, yeah, all through level four, level three, um, we published um, poetry, stories, essays, did a couple of events, a couple of readings. Um, 
sort of paid all our writers like really well. We had got submissions from, I don't know, like 500 like people across New Zealand. Um, and just we're published every day. And, you know, like when you're sitting at home in lockdown and there's fuck all to do except scroll Twitter. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people quite liked just having like, you know, a poem to read or a story to read rather than sort of like the traditional model of, oh, here's a book, go read the whole book. It's like, oh, here's one thing to read. You know, it's a manageable bite-sized chunk and it's high quality and it's, yeah. Um, and yeah, it was like, it was hard work, but it was awesome. So is it um, is it now, it's like a, uh, it's still here obviously, but you're not taking submissions anymore. Is it, I mean, no. I don't want to minimize it by calling it a blog, but is it more like a group of contributors, like an online magazine, and now yep. it's here forevermore. Are you going to do anything more with it? Is it going to become something else, you know, post lockdown? Uh, I think it's the, it's kind of there as a time capsule in terms of what's there now. That's what we're, we're calling like the first issue. Like, so if it was an online magazine, that would be it. And what we do going forward is something we're still figuring out. Um, we're doing like a couple of events. We've got like an event at um, Verb Wellington, which is like a Wellington literary festival. I think we want to do like some sort of hard copy book, like an anthology of some of the stuff we published. We've got a few ideas, but it's just sort of going forward whether we it changes into something else completely or whether we just leave it as a you know a thing of a place and time. I think we're like Sinead and I we're both just a little bit like you know the country's moved on. We're we're out of lockdown now. Let's give it a rest. We're both shattered, um, and we'll we'll come back to it in sort of in a useful way in the future. Other than that work, I guess you were doing during lockdown. I'm assuming that yeah. kept you pretty busy, but I mean, how was it for you? Were you someone who, uh, you know, who, who got work done during that lockdown? How was it for you creatively? Um, well, yeah, what did you get up to during that? We're talking for people who are in Auckland, obviously the first lockdown. Yeah, lockdown, lockdown 1.0. Yeah. Um, it was really good for me. I actually, um, I really liked it, uh, which I feel a lot of, you know, I certainly will have guilt in saying, because I, I guess I just had a good time um, compared to some, but um, I am lucky to have a really nice flat um, in Aro Valley, which is surrounded by awesome native bush and native birds. So like go bushwalking every day. Um, I sort of quit my job at the BSA halfway through and started a new job. Um, so that was that was a weird thing to do in lockdown. But um Stasis kept me busy. I did a lot of riding as well. Um, and like, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't normal life, but I think I personally was pretty fine with it. Um, and obviously I'm one of the lucky ones, but yeah, like for me, it, was, it definitely kind of made me think about, you know, sort of why, why was I enjoying it so much? What am I missing in my non-COVID life that I have now? Or, you know, that kind of stuff. So yeah, as far as lockdown goes, it's pretty good. And and your the job you started up, are you lawyering again? Is that the the you should stay in that field? Uh yeah. So I'm still in the public service. Um, I think that's probably all I should say on that. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. fine. That's fine. We're not not long <laughs> the pressure. Because what I was wondering yeah. as well is you've obviously got a like a nine to five full time job. One of the reasons we're talking in the evening, but I actually quite like doing these in the evening because it has a different feel to it. But also, yeah. you do some writing as well. Uh, apart from your stuff, your own things. I mean, you uh, you write for spin off occasionally there as well uh, and you also uh, well i don't know if you write regularly but i love this one that you've written for newsroom mostly because of the picture is fantastic um <laughs> it is, eh? but um how do you fit everything in and also what do you think of the nba <laughs> oh, man. how do i fit everything in well um p is a hell of a drug let me tell you that <laughs> no i don't know i don't know i i i, I do and then people often ask you that and I, I consider myself a reasonably lazy person or whatever so i just i don't know i you find time for shit that you like and i don't know i stay up late maybe um 
but yeah like the spin-off stuff like i love doing that and um that's all thanks to sam brooks who i believe you have on next yeah um, we've got a slew of you guys gets, yeah. i was trying you to do, i was trying do. to figure and, out what a, what a group of um a group of writers is called i think i said a slew of writers like a gaggle of geese i don't know if that's right yeah but, i like a slew yeah that's quite good what's like a what do you call those like pots that you put like quills in back in the day i don't know quiver like, Quiver, yeah, I reckon maybe a quiver of writers. A quiver like of that. writers. Sounds like we're, we're also, adding to the we're lexicon. We're quite meek as well, so quivering, you know, I think that's quite good. Yeah, um, yeah Sam, yeah. tomorrow afternoon, actually, that's going to be fun. He's, I think he's actually talking to us out of the um, spin-off studio, which will be oh, good brilliant. fun. Um, can, you, can you ask Sam for me um, how he managed to get into the Young Writers Festival when he's, in fact, not young, um, and whether he lied about his age? Uh, it's, it's, no, it's just something I give Sam shit for is that he's actually... He, he's slightly older than me and i call him an old man now that he's 30 um and that he shouldn't be coming to the young writers festival anymore well i will, I will yeah. definitely clip that video and play it for him tomorrow <laughs> without the explanation on the end so yes, um, he gets that question now tell me a bit about this article as well being an absolute fiend and fan when it comes to nba uh you oh, you, are? you, you yeah, wrote good. you wrote a piece that was uh talking to uh, you know people of profile people that were known in the public eye and why they're hooked on nba why did you write that yeah. piece because um, I'm also a fiend for the NBA. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. I fucking love it. And like, I I don't know. I have an interesting relationship with sports. Like, I, I like sports. I grew up. My dad's a sports nut, like, and also like a sports trivia nut, like quizzes and shit. And so I just grew up knowing a lot about it. And even though I, like, I still watch the occasional bit of rugby or cricket and that, like, I'm not, you know, a fanatic anymore, but I still kind of have that weird wealth of knowledge that sort of lives in me and people sort of find unexpected. But basketball is like one sport I've got more into as I've got older. Ah, um, interesting. Especially the NBA. Like, I don't know. And I think part of it is maybe also going back to our Mona Lisa discussion. It's the story, you know, like NBA is so good at selling narrative, at like selling media, at selling like concept. And like, it's a lot of it is like the journalism around it and the kind of the whole industry around it. I just fucking love it. Um, whether it's like the fashion or, you know, the sort of, the capitalist kind of like contract side of it or the writing or the actual basketball. Like I think it's so multifaceted and it's become such a big part of American culture. Um, and yeah, so I wanted to like, I guess I kind of noticed that trend in New Zealand of the NBA growing in popularity and seeing more of my friends and people on Twitter and shit getting really into it. And I was like, okay. Um, and I, was, I noticed like a few sort of like, I guess reasonably high profile New Zealanders as high profile as you can be in New Zealand <laughs> who are like obsessed with, obsessed with it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, maybe they'll want to talk about it and we can talk about why it's getting so popular and why, you know, why it should be popular and why more people should watch it. Are you, it's the best sport in the world. Are you so, currently, yeah. currently following closely? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm actually, absolutely. I'm loving this lockdown basketball. I really like it because oh, with the front row of the spectators missing, you get different camera angles and stuff. And speaking of tweeting, um, I'm very keen to see Anthony Davis win the finals MVP over LeBron James when that happens, especially after he's been performing so well in the last couple of games. Oh man, that, that shot, that um, the shot <laughs> yeah. when he called Kobe yeah. over Denver, that yeah. was wild. Yeah. It's Anthony Davis, like ever since he came into the league, has been one of my favorite players just because he's so freakish and unique and like it's he's always had that promise you know and like he's, he had like kind of a shitty team and it's just awesome to see him explode and have those like big time moments now and also i still love lebron and it's awesome to see like he's just a you know defying father time like no one else ever yeah and i think they're gonna they're gonna steamroll the nuggets i think they're gonna steamroll the heat or the celtics whoever get through it'll be nice to see the celtics because i i mean i was in yeah a wee a, 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 more than a glint in my father's eye yeah. but i was a wee sprog in the 80s and that was basically all New Zealand knew about was the Lakers versus the 
versus the Celtics. Yeah, it was obviously they? Magic and Larry, and, and there wasn't really anyone Magic else Larry. you knew about. Yeah, and so I I played basketball all the I played for twenty years. One of the reasons I've got I've such shit house knees now is because I played basketball for twenty years. <laughs> but yeah. my but my era is the nineties of watching. Yeah. So I oh, so the nice. Save the Last Dance was everything oh, that man. I everything that I watched live was in Save the Last Dance. So it's a cool thing here. I was gonna I didn't ask you this question to show you this, but this is my one show off when I talk basketball with people. Uh in the early nineties yeah, I used to collect basketball cards. Um and what you're yeah. what I'm about to show you is forty Oh shit. And they're just Shaquille O'Neal cards and about twenty they're all Shaq. Twenty of them are rookie cards. And you can see, you can see, holy like, shit! And you can see like this one here. See that one there? You can see that when I go around in circles. Yeah. And that one there are the yeah. same. That's because that one there was the one you got in the pack, and that one there was the one you had to send to America to get. And they had a couple like that. See these the same two here. One's a draft pick, and one's a draft pick they have to send to America. So these are my Shaquille O'Neal rookie cards, uh, including some college ones as well as this, some college ones and some autographed ones. That one yeah. down there. Oh yeah, I see. It's yeah. autographed with Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway. So yeah, holy shit! So and and the plastic sleeves that they're in. Do you know what those are worth? Uh the problem. Yeah. The, the problem is, unfortunately, in the early nineties, there was an explosion of basketball cards, and there was millions of them. So, um, you know, Michael Jordan's rookie uh, card. One of Michael Jordan's rookie cards yeah. sold for a hundred grand the other day. But that's because in eighty, what was it? Eighty four, eighty six, eighty six. I think Ooh. it was. Um, it, they they 86, weren't they yeah. weren't quite the same. Um, they didn't have quite the same number of cards out there, but in the nineties it exploded. So you know they're probably yeah, yeah. worth three, four grand in total US dollars, but yeah. nothing like what you know the the ten year like the Magic rookie card or the Michael rookie card yeah, or the yeah. Larry rookie card would be worth. So I, I and but it I, doesn't matter because you have them and they're awesome. Like that's an incredible collection. Yeah, that's so cool. I've got a shitload yeah. more as well. I've got lots of Michael ones and that kind of stuff, Jordan ones. But yeah, but they're and and the day I got them, they went in those sleeves and they've been in those sleeves ever since. So that's thirty years, close to close to thirty nice. years. Holy shit! Um, yeah, I go, man. That's oh, I, I feel <laughs> must be past my bedtime now because I just said that. That is a long <laughs> time. Hey, um, Jordan Hamill, it's been an absolute delight. Catching up with you and meeting you and having a chat with you, um, you've got uh, and you've got you've got something coming up with the Young Writers Festival. You said, are you going to be in yep. Dunedin or are you going to be zooming in? What's the story? Uh, I'll be in Dunedin uh, from Thursday until Sunday, uh, doing a few events as part of the Young Writers Festival down there. Um, if you're in Dunnes, come along, check it out. It's um, a few most of them are at Dog with Two Tails, so it's a pub, which is great, or a few venues around there. There's um, all kinds of workshops, performances, heaps of different stuff, heaps of cool young writers. Um, yeah, so that'd be cool. Come along. Dog, with two, Dog with two Tails is the shit. It's an it amazing little cafe. Yeah. So they and make everything on site. And they make everything good. on site, including their bread. It is amazing. Really? That's nice. Very, very good. Jordan, if you want to find out more about Jordan, what he's up to, jordanhamill.co.nz. Jordan, thanks for coming and chatting with us tonight. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And um, uh, I have, have fun this weekend in, yeah. in Dunedin. Yeah, I've had an awesome time. Thanks for having me on. It's been, it's been really great. All right, team, that's us done and dusted. The Department of Conversation brought to you by Stratus, a hassle-free, reliable, compact pod kit. The Stratus pod kit is one of the most user-friendly, easy-to-use pods on the market. Thank you to Jordan Hamill for jumping in and having a chat with us. He talked in that conversation about Sam Brooks. Sam Brooks from Spinoff is going to be coming up tomorrow evening uh, as we record this, so... uh, 
well, depending on when you hear it, coming up next. We'll just say it that way. And then also this week, we're going to be having a chat with broadcasting legend Stacey Morrison and Professor Stephen Lewandowski, who we've talked about a couple of times so far. He is the scientist whose area of research looks at why people don't believe the science and why when something is proven to be wrong, like a belief you have is proven to be wrong, you still refuse to give it up. Now, you might think, oh, that sounds familiar. Yes, we're living in a world where those kinds of people are keeping a certain president in the United States right now. So uh, Professor Stephen Lewandowski also coming up this week. If you get to this podcast before he comes up, he is dinner time on Thursday, 24th of September. All right, team, if you want to get a hold of us, if you want to connect with us, uh, you can get to us through www.thedoc.nz or just look up DOCNZ on Facebook as an easy way to find us as well. Thank you once again for joining us. Thank you for giving us some time. I, I appreciate that you could choose to you know put your... Uh, time anywhere you wanted to you've chosen to be with us genuinely appreciate that so i want to say thank you again for doing that uh, stay safe yes most of us are in level one uh, aucklanders are in level two the rest of the world well you guys are fucked but you know the, but here in new zealand that's where we're at so for those of you who still need to which is everybody actually everybody wash your hands even those of you in level one wash your hands and i would suggest maybe the social distancing and stuff to stay there and please use that app to show, show where you've been, where you've been, which means if anyone does get uh, infected with this horrible virus that's still out there, it'll stop us from having to be locked down in level three or four again. So stay safe, wash your hands, be well, as we continue to make sweet, sweet love in your ear holes since we've been doing since 2018. And until we see you next time, hooroo.